I am Dr. Lacey Baldivias, and this is the Food as Medicine podcast, sponsored by the Food Bank of Santa Barbara County. I believe that health is a fundamental right, and then we can step our way toward a long and healthful life by paying attention to the food that we put into our bodies every single day. Welcome back, everyone, to Diet Decisions Part 2. In this episode, we're going to cover the paleo diet, Whole30, and Mediterranean diet for you. Glad you could join us. One diet that was mentioned early on, I think in the context of autoimmune conditions was the paleo diet. So how would you describe paleo? Paleo, as it was originally conceived, was based around the notion that to be optimally healthy, humans should eat the diet that their ancestors ate before we, uh, before we became agrarian and you know, started cultivating seed crops and certainly before we came, we became industrialized and we came into this world of ultra processed foods. You know, it includes kind of anything that you could theoretically hunt or gather, wild game, fish, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, berries, mushrooms, anything that you could picture growing out of the ground or eating something that grows out of the ground or swims in the sea. It kind of goes back to your song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it does specifically and very clearly omit grains, dairy, although now all of these diets kind of have evolved over time. So now you have a, a contingent of mostly paleo eaters that do consume dairy from pastured animals, and most of them do it fermented, you know. And then the, one of the other big things that it leaves out is the, what we call the industrial seed oils, and that would be your soybean oil, your canola oil, cottonseed oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, the ones you can buy in the clear plastic bottles at most grocery stores still. And they usually look yellow. Yeah. You talked about paleo in the context of being useful for someone who has an autoimmune condition. What are some examples? Oh God, it's a long list. There apparently they've identified over 80 different autoimmune conditions at this point. And I, I think we are still identifying more. But Hashimoto's thyroiditis is one, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, vitiligo, multiple sclerosis, lupus, yep, Graves' disease, scleroderma. That's helpful. And is the whole 30s, I think sometimes people get this recommendation from their doctors, is the whole 30 diet similar to paleo or is it different in some critical ways? Yeah, I would say not critical ways, but it is different. It, it's basically paleo, but it's like the ultra cleanest version of paleo that you could do. So no legumes, uh, no alcohol. And what's kind of cool, I think, about Whole30 is that it's, it's sort of this prepackaged, done-for-you, easy way to, to do an elimination diet, basically, and to see how your body responds. Do you, do you see a diminishment in joint pain, for example? This is something that you can, you can participate in a Whole30. You can see how you feel, and then you can reintroduce foods that you had previously eliminated to see if you notice any changes in your body upon reintroduction. So it's just a neat learning tool to figure out how food affects you, maybe in ways that you hadn't anticipated. I think another benefit of Whole30 is that it it tries to reset your palate. It gives you a month, because it's 30 days, Whole30. It gives you a month to really eat cleanly. Like Vibeka says, eliminate some inflammatory food groups 
and, and let you see how you feel. One little thing that Whole30 doesn't let you do is that it doesn't let you make little treats. So for example, even though eggs and bananas are both allowed on Whole30, you're not allowed to mix them together in a blender and make pancakes, which is something that I would do, let's say as a paleo eater. But Whole30 wants you to kind of move away from wanting pancakes because they aren't something that would occur naturally. So I think it's just a reset where it just cleans your palate. It gets you used to eating whole foods. And then hopefully when you're done, you see if you feel better and you continue along the whole food path. And the whole thing about just seeing how you feel, I think there are a lot of people walking around and their version of normal is maybe their energy is not that consistent, or maybe they're a little achy, or maybe their skin breaks out. And they don't really think about it because it's their version of normal. And it's been their version of normal for so long that it's just normal. And doing something like a Whole30 can really open your eyes to the possibilities of how you could feel. And that's, that's kind of exciting. I have a friend who has a great analogy for that. And I've seen what Vivek is talking about happen for myself and for clients where you don't think you're sensitive to a food until you eliminate it. And then when you go to reintroduce it again, suddenly you really feel it and you think, well, why did I not feel it before? And this friend of mine has this analogy where she says, if you have a tablecloth and it's just covered in stains and you throw another stain on there, you can't really see the stain. But if you've got a white tablecloth, which would be akin to, you know, having a clean palate and a clean way of eating, you've got this white tablecloth and there are no stains on it. And then you put one big stain in the middle, you're going to see that stain. It's going to be pretty obvious. And I've seen that happen a lot in practice where you really feel things more clearly. It, it makes identifying them much more easy. I used to lead a little kind of a mini Whole30 kind of thing called Restart. And what I used to do was have the participants complete a little questionnaire, like a symptom survey, basically in different categories like digestion, what's your skin doing, how are your energy levels, whole host of questions, and then score themselves. And then we would do three weeks of basically kind of a whole 30. And I would have them complete that same questionnaire at the end of the process. And to a person, their scores were just dramatically different. And people were always in shock. So for the paleo diet, did we cover all of the pros and cons that you want to share about it? It does really orient people to kind of the quality and the sourcing of their food. Paleo people do try to eat wild or pastured meats and, you know, eggs. We try to stay away from any kind of confined animal product, organic fruits and vegetables. So these things can drive the cost up, which makes it, makes it challenging for large numbers of people. And then if you're cooking a lot, if you're eating whole foods, that means you are spending more time in the kitchen, you know, chopping those foods and cooking those foods. And so um, just from a logistics perspective, it can be challenging. Although there are lots of hacks and tips and tricks that are available, you know, to make it more doable. And I guess I would say too, that for any of these diets, if you're doing them on a whole foods basis, you, you would be spending more time in the kitchen. So that's not particularly specific to paleo anymore. So how do, does paleo differ from the Mediterranean diet? 
Uh, it does. I mean, the, the, the funny similar thing is that the Mediterranean diet is based on um, kind of the food ways of countries like Italy and Greece, you know, countries around the Mediterranean in the 1960s. And in that part of the world, the foodways had not yet been very heavily industrialized. And so in that way, it's kind of strangely similar to the paleo diet in that they're both avoiding a, a lot of processed foods. But the Mediterranean diet is different in that it does not specifically eliminate anything, really. So it does include grains, unlike paleo. It includes dairy and legumes, which can be sort of restricted or questioned on paleo. The big similarity is the focus on traditional whole foods. What are some examples of the foods that would fit into the Mediterranean diet? Seafood, for sure. Olive oil, moderate amounts of red wine, land animals too. Depending on how far away from the ocean people lived in that region, they ate more or less red meat or pork or chicken. And again, those animals were not raised in cages and fed grains. They were pastured animals. Yeah. Eating their normal diets and engaging in normal animal behaviors. Really, I think the big olive oil component is huge. And the focus on seafood, I think, is a big boon for the Mediterranean diet. When people think of Mediterranean diet, they may think of pastas and, and maybe garlic bread and things like that. Does that actually fit into the Mediterranean diet? Technically, yes. I think absolutely. But from a nutrition perspective, I would put pasta in the recreational category. It's low in nutrition. It's kind of a filler food. It's absolutely delicious, but it's not something that I would counsel anyone to make a regular part of a diet. But from a processed food perspective, maybe it's not quite as bad as some of the ultra processed foods you can get packaged at a store. I mean, pastas, it's basically durum wheat flour and water. Yes. So, so the ingredient list is very straightforward and very simple. They're ingredients we understand. I just think that it is, um, it would be blood sugar spiking for people who don't have good blood sugar control and it is low in nutrients. So those would be the two reasons that I would not encourage regular consumption. And I do wonder nutritionally, you know, in Italy, I'd have to do some research into this, but I don't know if they ate one big plate of pasta and that was their whole meal, or if a little bit of pasta was seen as a bit of an appetizer and then you ate a really nutrient dense meal with fish and greens and eggplant and tomatoes yes. and chickpeas and and that, does, that goes back to when you go to a nice Italian restaurant, they have your first course and your second course. And the first course is always pasta. And the second course that gets to your, your, your meats and fish. Yeah. Is there anything else we should know about like for people who may be interested in following the Mediterranean diet, any other cornerstones or pros and cons of the diet itself? Well, I think it's a great diet personally. And I, it's kind of nice for people here in Santa Barbara because we do live in a Mediterranean climate. So the foods produced here locally really lend themselves to that style of eating. There's a lot of research behind it. It's not super restrictive either. So for yeah. people who really don't like having rules imposed on them and who will rebel whenever you say you can't have this or you can't have that. And a lot of people feel that way. And I understand why. So if you don't like having restrictions, this is a diet that doesn't really do that. It doesn't give you restrictions the same way. 
we're going to go ahead and end there for today, but join us on episode three where we'll discuss the vegetarian diet and vegan diets for you.